You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today, I get to share with you guys about worship and the Word. And when Jessica first asked me if I could do this, I was like, oh yeah, those are really easy little topics. Like 30 minutes, I'm not sure I can talk for that long. Totally kidding. Um, It's a huge topic. And so I kind of struggled to find a balance of like, where, how do you cover these two things? And in my brain, I was looking at them as like a Venn diagram and where did they overlap? And God kind of changed my perspective. And he said, it's not that they're two different things and they overlap, it's that they're two things inside of a broader category. And that is spiritual disciplines. Um, Is anybody familiar with that word? We becoming comfortable with it. Um, I feel like it's kind of become part of Christian vocabulary in the last 15 years or so and something that we're more aware of. So what are spiritual disciplines? Spiritual disciplines are practices that help us become more like Christ. They do this in two ways. They connect us to God or they help break the power of sin. Two totally different functions, but equally important as we draw close to Christ. We've got to shed that, that sin nature that we have, and we also have to draw close to our Father. So we see spiritual disciplines modeled by Jesus. Um, even though he was perfectly God, he still prayed, he still practiced solitude, he fasted, he studied and memorized scripture. We can see that he quoted it as often as he spoke to crowds of people, and he was ready with the word. And so we know that he spent time in his youth, as any young Hebrew boy would have done, learning God's word and um, being submitted to it. He lived in community, and he attended the synagogue or temple every week. We see him there uh, frequently in scripture. He celebrated with friends, and he served others, and all of those are things that are spiritual disciplines. So the reason that we want to do what Jesus did is so that we can be transformed to be like him. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want to be passionate about the things that he was passionate about, and we want to know his father. Um, I've heard it said that the role of a minister, the role of a church is to prepare us for death and to prepare us for what comes after death. And that is being in the presence of God. So our spiritual disciplines are things that are going to help us practice being like Christ so that when we stand before God, we are made in the image of Christ and we look like Jesus. And that's really our ultimate goal as believers. So we practice all of these different things as spiritual disciplines. a quote of, that I liked about this is, or, sorry, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. If Jesus lived your life, if he walked in your shoes, if he had your family, if he had to make the decisions that you have to make, what would he do there? So it's a little bit longer than what would Jesus do, but it's what would he do if he were in your shoes? Um, and that's by a guy that has a lot, had a lot to say about spiritual disciplines, um, Dallas Willard. So a story from my own life um, where the rubber hit the road, so to speak, came about in college. I'd grown up in a Christian home. I have a wonderful set of parents, fantastic brother, grew up in great churches, and I became a believer at an early age. But when I got to college, um, my ability to make my own decisions of how to use my time and my own ambition and my own drive to do all the things meant that I was trying to do all of the things. And it was about my sophomore year where I was a Christian studies major and I was involved in so many different wonderful things. 
But that summer I had done a Bethmore Bible study at home and I'd had time to do that on my own. If you're not familiar with those, they're about 45 minutes of study a day, five days a week. So translate that back onto a college campus and onto a dorm room scenario. And I could not find time for this. And the more I tried, the more frustrated I got. And finally, after weeks and weeks and weeks of interruptions and more important things, because there's real life realities of, I say more important things. Ultimately, they're not more important things, but more pressing things, I should say. Um, I was ready to give up. And I was doing so many good things, but I was feeling like a phony because I just couldn't figure out this Bible study thing. And um, I finally reached a point where I prayed and I was like, God, I just don't have time for this. And what I meant when I said that was, I don't have time for you. Um, I said, hold on to me because I I just can't hold on to you right now. Not like this. Now, that should have been a um, something that I could have come back around to and reasoned through a lot faster than I did. But instead, I felt like Anita was talking about in her last message. I felt like an imposter. And it took me several years to overcome the shame of, I don't have time for God, and I'm not good at this, and I'm not a good Bible study girl. And I... I just had this like perfect image of what a quiet time should look like. And in that season, I couldn't shake that perfect mental image to fit the reality where I was. And so it brought me huge shame. And I didn't tell anybody about that. But instead, I went about and finished my degree, worked at a church. And the whole time, as I was doing all these things, on the inside, I felt like I was rotting away because I was like, I'm not actually good at this. I can do it on the outside and I can do it in all of these other ways, but when it really comes down, rubber meets the road, when it comes down to my personal quiet time, I stink at this and I don't know if God likes me. And that was just how I felt. I see sad faces. I'm sorry. Isn't it a tragic story though? The reason it's tragic is because we know so much better and because we recognize that there's grace. Um, So in my pursuit of the perfect quiet time, and in my feelings of failure, it turns out that what I was missing, the things that I was missing, look a lot like a framework for spiritual disciplines in general. Who knew? (laughs) So uh, some of the things that I was missing, right, all right, some of the things that I was missing were community. I was surrounded by fantastic people. I was surrounded by a dorm full of Christian friends. I had a great church family, and I had fantastic family at home. But in that season, I was so ashamed that I wasn't willing to reach out and trust that my problems were common to other people. And so I traded God's gift of community for isolation, and I didn't let anyone speak into me. Now me would tell then me, why Beth Moore? Why the 45-minute-a-day study? Is there a reason that that's the requirement that you have for talking to God and for having a quiet time? And the then me couldn't see that. And I just needed someone to look at me and say, hey, maybe your expectation isn't meeting your reality and you've had this disappointment because there's this gap here. So that was one thing that was lacking. Um, Now me would look at then me and say, hey, let's do it together. I can find time for that. Maybe instead of finishing it in 10 weeks, maybe we should finish it over the semester because that'll fit our schedules better. But we could do it here in the dorm room together. You know what I mean? Like I, I just needed to 
reach out and ask. And there were people around that were going to help me. So my point here is that we need each other. John 14 makes it clear that Jesus desires for us, mere humans, to be drawn um, into and share in community with God. That's his ultimate goal, is that we would be able to relate to him. So he gave us a practice space, a place where we can relate with each other and where we can work out those rough edges and practice being in community. And it's the church. Um, the church can look like here with this group of people. The church could look like my dorm room with Christian friends. Um, but God is refining us and he wants to use us to do that together. So early Christians didn't have an understanding of a believer on their own. They only understood Christianity and following Jesus in the context of relationship. So it was kind of like Jessica was talking about last night. There are things that you work out on your own, but ultimately you do it in community. And so that was something that I was missing. The second thing I was missing was honesty. Um, God doesn't ask questions like, where are you? Because he doesn't know the answer. He asks them because we need to know the answer. Um, my husband, Joe, has been accused of always asking questions that he, or never asking questions that he doesn't know the answer to. And God is 100% 100 that way. Um, when Jesus, or excuse me, when God the Father asked uh, Adam and Eve, where are you in Genesis 3, he knew that they needed that reconciliation to him and they needed the confession of stating that they'd sinned. They played the blame game instead and it took a lot longer for them to be drawn back to God the Father and for that relationship to be restored. And so from that, I would just take that God can't heal what we hide. If we continually like pass the buck and pass it off on someone else, if we're not willing to say, this is me and this is my struggle and this is where I really am, God can't heal that. And so he asks us questions and I would just encourage you, if God is putting something on your heart and he's tapping there, if the Holy Spirit is leaning on you and saying, hey, consider, where are you? And he's asking those questions, draw close to him and be honest with him because he wants to, um, he wants to heal us and he wants to make us more like his son in those answers. The thing I was struggling with in that time was pride. It was this big giant idol of self of I can't let anybody see me as being less than the Christian that they think I am. So I'm gonna hide here and I'm gonna stuff my problem down and I'm not gonna address it. Um, and God had to meet me at that stronghold and save me from it. And he did. Um, I didn't learn the words for that until much later, but um, that is exactly what God did there. So another thing that we need is that we need security. We need to know that our place is secure and we don't have anything to do with that. It did take me a while to figure out that God wasn't impressed with me, no matter how much I tried. He's impressed with his son and that's who he wants us to be like. Um, at the same time, God doesn't love us any less, no matter how hard we don't try. I'd miss the point that God wasn't mad if I, that I hadn't shown up the day before for Bible study and quiet time, but he could make me more like his son if I showed up that day. He could make me even more like his son if I showed up the next day. So that's why he asks us to do those things so that we would be transformed to be like him. If a spiritual discipline is supposed to make you more like Jesus and you mess it up, you're just proving that you're not perfect like Jesus yet. Um, it's a hard thing to kind of wrap, wrap your brain around, but that's not sin. So if you're not good at a spiritual discipline yet, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be closer to meeting that goal later. And it's not sin to mess it up. It's not the ideal, but it's where we're going and we're gonna take missteps along the way towards being like Jesus. Uh, Romans 8 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation from the sin that we have in our life. 
There's no condemnation from Satan that can stick, and there's no condemnation from God. So why do we condemn ourselves, and why do we get discouraged? God's love is based solely on who he is. God is love. It's part of his nature. He made me, and he chose to love me. He made you, and he chose to love you. And he, loved to, he loves us enough to leave us alone if we reject him, but his unshakable love doesn't even change then. It just changes our relationship with him and the product of our outcome. It doesn't change whether or not he loves us. So God loves you unconditionally because he chooses to, period, end of story. Um, I've heard accepting God's love as being compared to learning how to float. You're in the water either way. You can either lay back and relax, or you can thrash about a lot and swallow some water. But you're going to get wet either way. And the same thing is true with God. God loves us. It is a fact and a undeniable truth. Are you going to accept it or not um, is the outcome of that. And are you going to let it change your life or not? So another thing that um, is kind of this framework for um, spiritual disciplines is to keep the point in mind. Um, the point of spiritual disciplines is to be like Christ. And something that I'd missed in that story was that I had missed the point. I think I thought that there was a Bible study trophy somewhere <laughs> and that I really wanted to earn it, apparently. So, but it turns out that God's not calling us to be a good Bible studier. He's not calling us to be a good faster. And he's not calling us to be a great worshiper for the sake of those things. He's calling us to all of those things because he wants us to be like Jesus. Um, people that are fantastic at their craft will drill the basics over and over and over. A basketball star's goal isn't to be known for doing layups. And there's not a pianist in the world that really, really wants to be known for their awesome scales. But they practice these things over and over and over again because it gives them the flexibility to do the other things that they need to do in their life. And that is a part of a point of the spiritual disciplines is so that we can live like Jesus in all of the areas of our life. And so we have the strength and the dexterity and the repetitions in us to know what to do and what to go back to in those areas. Um, so there's not a star chart or a blessing for you every single time you read a devotional in the morning. And there's not two blessings for you if you read two devotionals. <laughs> If you read seven devotionals, there's not seven blessings for you. If you need to do that and you th that benefits you, have at it. But if it's been a goal that's moved towards a requirement and it's feeling like a burden, it's not a spiritual discipline anymore. It's legalism. All right? It's legalism. And legalism is the opposite of grace. So let's roll our shoulders out for a second and relax. And then we're gonna talk specifically about two of those spiritual disciplines. We're gonna talk about worship first and hopefully seamlessly transition into talking about Bible study too. So worship, uh, Joe's favorite definition of worship is that worship is a dialogue between God and his people. It's a rhythm of revelation and response. As God reveals himself to us, we respond. And it could be through singing, it could be through making a joyful noise. It can be through tears and um through joy and through awe at his creation. It can be through action and it can be through repentance. Those are just a few of the ways that we can respond to God. Um, and worship begins with God. It's kind of a weird thing to think about this, but the first worshipful relationship before anything was created was amongst God. 
God is a triune God. And every time we see God relate to himself in the Bible, Jesus talking about his Father, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, when we see those things, even God interrupting uh, Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration saying, this is my son, listen to him. In all of those things, we see this wonderful respect and love and care that God has for himself. So as weird as it is to think that God would worship himself, that's a really good definition for how he relates to himself in that community. And so if that was talking about anybody else, it would sound insanely egotistical and arrogant, right? Somebody worships themselves. Like people that do that, we call narcissists, right? Like that's not a good thing except God is 100% worthy of it. And he's the only perfect one that is. And so when we can recognize that God recognizes that our best direction of aiming our heart's attention is towards him, then it's not egotistical to think of God as being worthy of even his own respect and adoration. Um, Does that make sense? It's kind of a weird, big concept, isn't it? So, when we turn our lives towards him, we're moving our hearts and our minds in the right direction. And from there, we can flow out into all the other areas and it puts everything into place. So worship also begins with God because he's the source of that revelation. So we're not, um, even like creation is something that he reveals to us and that he created and he gave us the senses to experience it. So even something that we think of as being an indirect and like, oh God, that sunrise is amazing. He made it, and so we're responding to his creation and to his handiwork there. So as far as the story goes, man's worship began in the garden, and there's no altar there. There's no tabernacle there. There's no temple. There's no church building. There was God, and there was Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve's job in the garden was to take care of it, to tend it, to be fruitful, to multiply, And then we know that they walked with God, that God anticipated a walk with them. And when they didn't show up in Genesis 2, we know that something, he knew that they had sinned. He knew that before then. But they recognized that they were missing a divine appointment with God the Father. So what they did with their job was their worship. We don't see them, we don't have a quote of them singing. We don't have the psalm that they wrote on the spot and sang to God. But we do see that they obeyed and that they did what God asked of them. And that was their first act of worship. And when we do the same thing, when we live out our lives doing what God asks us to do, we are worshiping. We are responding to his revelation in our lives. So um, when we cheerfully embrace the good things that he gives us, that's worship. When we do our work well as unto the Lord, that's worship. When we teach our children about God and his ways, we're worshiping. When we love one another, when we take a Sabbath rest and just relax knowing that God gives us all of the good things that we enjoy, we're worshiping. We're seeing the revelation of God and we're responding. So worship is what we do all day that honors God. It's accomplished according to how he made you, the gifts and resources you have, what he's called you to do, and where and with whom he's placed you. So Romans 12, one says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In this, we are a people of now and we are a people of not yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can we get it? 
Oh, I'm sorry. I gave Thor a lot of notes. I can catch you up afterwards. Worship is what you do all day. Oh, worship is what we do all day that honors God. Rita's onto something over here. You're totally welcome to take a screenshot of the screen if you need to. I, I often shortcut that way. So um, go for it. So we are people of now and not yet. Um, there's a verse in Jeremiah 29 that um, kind of came up as we were starting Renovation Greenville. And um, I think Ashley would attest to this. Our hearts were feeling pulled in two directions um, because we wanted to fully embrace what God was calling us into, but also recognizing that we were leaving something behind. And there's an eternal truth that's true there too, and that's that we are looking forward to new bodies in, a, in heaven, and we're looking forward to worship there. But we are also, like the Israelites, exiles. We're in a different place. Our home is not here. And so what do we do with that? We are people of now and not yet. Um, this verse in Jeremiah 29 um, describes the Israelites in exile, and it was God's instructions to them. He told them to plant gardens in Babylon. Now, a people that don't want to be where they're going rarely plant things, right? You don't, you don't want to dig the soil there. You don't want to work it. You don't want to, you don't want to do that. That means you're going to be there for a while. It means you have something to tend in that place and take care of. That's not what you want to do when you're in a place that you don't want to be in. Um, but he told them to make where they lived and worked and raise their families beautiful, to make them better. They were supposed to sing the song of their salvation even as they waited for it. And that is so true of us today. We often want to put our focus heavenward and just look forward to that. Shut out the world around us, stick with our church family, and just focus on where we're going. But God calls us to make where we are the best it can be. And that is part of our worship. Um, we're supposed to find rest. We're supposed to enjoy laughter. We're supposed to reach out of our comfort zone. And we're supposed to grow flowers. Sounds like a silly thing, doesn't it? But when we make the spaces here beautiful, we are a witness to the people around us that what God has is good. And where he's taking us is good. And we can bring that beauty back to where we are. Um, so I encourage you, plant a garden, take the flowers to your neighbors. All right. Um, so far we've talked about worship and in our lives and in how we relate to other people. And we could call that scattered worship, right? It's us outside of this place, outside of the building, outside of church. But we're also called to worship gathered because worship is what we do out there, but it's also what we do when we get here. Um, gathering as a community is a command. It's something that God called us to do. He wants us to, to be together. And if you have access to the best worship songs, which we do now, like historically speaking, you've got some really awesome ability to listen to worship songs and a huge plethora of them on a device that fits in your hand. That's pretty amazing, but that's not the only way that God calls us to worship. He calls us to get together and to listen to a band trying their best to do those same songs live. Ours does a great job. Um, not always the case at a lot of churches, but we, we experience worship together and we listen to each other sing, however well or poorly, because God commands us to. Um, Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We worship God with our lives, but we also worship him when we gather as community. He is a triune God. He exists in community and he's inviting us towards it. And he created man, but he wouldn't declare man very good until he had put man with a partner. We're supposed to do this life together. So I encourage you to gather with your church family and gather together to worship him. One interesting thought I had is why sing? Like, what's the deal? Like, can't we just get together and like read and pray and go do good things in the community? But when we sing to God, we are actually practicing being unified. It's possibly the most unified thing that the body of Christ does. And we do it weekly for half an hour or so. We stand together and we sing with one voice the truths of God over each other. And God thinks it's beautiful. Isn't that amazing? Like we are so unified when we're singing together. Um, It's good practice for us. We need that. So um, in doing so, we are practicing being in the presence of God, whether we're honoring God in our daily lives and doing the things he's called us to. And when we are gathering together, we're practicing being in his presence. Um, One of my, I just made a note on here. If you need inspiration for joining in worship, take a look at Revelation 5. It's where we're going. It's heaven. And it's heaven before the lamb who is slain and is standing there and is the only one who can break the seal and to claim the promises of God. And in those verses, you see elders and you see, I did the math because it says tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of angels. That's at least a hundred thousand angels. All right. So there's, or no, that's at least a hundred million angels. Um, And every creature on earth are all gathering together to worship. That's where we're going. And we get to practice that in our own way, in our own churches, in our own context every week together. So um, our worship is beneficial to one another. We, we are not the goal of our worship, but we do get to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God, but with one another, and we get to sing them over one another. And it's encouraging to sing songs knowing that the person next to you is singing it too, and that that truth that hit you hard or is hard for you to sing is true in their lives too. Um, there's people in our auditorium who are beautiful worshipers and they're prayerful worshipers. And as they sing, they are singing those songs over the congregation and they are praying those words of life over the people around them. So as we sing together, wow, why did that make me teary-eyed? Who knows? Anyway, so um, as we sing, if those words are hitting you hard or if that's a hard truth for you to hear, you need to know that someone is singing it to your soul and that they mean those words Um, and they mean them for you, um, and that God means them for you. So transitioning here, we worship God in spirit and in truth. That is what we see in John 4. Um, Jesus is with a Samaritan woman, and she tries to deflect from her own dilemmas by asking, well, where are we supposed to worship God? You guys worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. And how's that supposed to go? And instead, he turns the tables on her, He offers her living water and he tells her that in the future, worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. We're going to worship by the power of the Holy Spirit with his aid in our lives and in our hearts. But we also worship a God who's revealed himself. And so the things that he has for us to know are the truths, is the truth. And so worshiping in spirit and in truth um, 
is not specific to a time or to a place or to a people. It's available to anyone who trusts him and who drinks that living water. And that is through the equipping of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know truth, right? All right, so we're going to transition to talking about Bible study and um, understanding God's word. There are things that God has given us as common grace. Um, The revelation of his creation is a common grace. Anybody can see God's hand in creation. And those things we call general revelation. Anybody can see that aspect of God anywhere in the world. It's, it is a general revelation. There's also special revelation, and that is God's word. Um, Psalm 19 is a great example of this. It talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. And then it also says, but your word and talks about God's laws and his precepts and all of these things. And so in that one chapter, we see both general revelation and special revelation. And I'd encourage you to read that when you have a chance. God's word, God's word is a central part of his dialogue with us. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture reveals God's character to us, and it also reveals his design for us. By studying it, we're able to respond to God, and he works with us to renew our minds. So I've got four things here. This is a great one to screenshot. I just snap it. There you go. All right, so scripture reveals God's character and his design for us. As we study it, we're able to respond to God, and he works with us to renew our minds. 10 minutes, okay. With renewed minds, we're able to discern God's will. So we get all the way from God's character to knowing his will in our lives as we study his word. All right, so I'm gonna speed through my last two points. Fortunately, I'm on page six of six and a half. Um, So with all of this talk, um, coming back around to the question of quiet time, should I have done it? Absolutely. I should have dug in then, even though it was hard. I should have trusted the community around me with my difficulties and let them pour into me. I should have seen that God wanted to reveal himself to me and been willing to submit myself to that and to develop habits that would have enabled it. Um, And I know those things now. (laughs) Um, I'm much better at it now than I was then, Um, even though my personality is still one that's not really great at waking up at five something in the morning and opening my Bible cheerfully and bright-eyed and receiving and remembering later what I read. Um, But out of my community recently, I heard a great definition of quiet time. It was actually from Nathan Gamble. And he said that a professor of his Um, told him that a quiet time is our daily bread. And so we can take our daily bread as often as we need it for as long as we need it. All right? So that daily meal isn't something that you necessarily remember perfectly later. It's not a study that you do so that you can recall every word of it to mind Sometimes it passes over us and it just causes us to reflect on God and his goodness and to set our minds and our hearts in the right place. But just like you might not remember what you had for breakfast three days ago, your daily meal, your daily bread then is something that it's, it's okay if it just moves you in the direction of moving your heart and your life towards Jesus. That said, we should also take time to study God's word. So you've got a book that, um, 
we ordered a hundred of them a while ago and we have them still. So you guys get one. Um, but it's, it is called Women of the Word. And this lady does an awesome job of teaching us how to take time to focus and dive in and dig into Bible study. And um, so I encourage you, have a quiet time and have a backup plan. Because in my life, I need backup plans too. So I know when I'm going to meet with God and I have a plan for that. But if my morning gets disrupted, I have a backup plan. It usually involves locking my bathroom door and being in the bathroom at that point and having, you know, people on, you know, screens or do extra math flashcards or something, kids. Anyway, so have a plan for how you're going to meet with God. Develop backup plans if you need to. Steer your life in the direction so that you can have an understanding of God's purpose and his plans for your life. But then also, I hope you'll take time to study God's word. If those can be one and the same, that's awesome. If you need to make a special time in a special place when you're fully awake and alert and if you've had your coffee and everything else is taken care of, to dive in and eat the meat of God's word, I encourage you to do that too. Um, it's a little different perspective than sometimes we hear is kind of, it's all funneled into one thing, but you can break it apart and you can consider it in both aspects. So something to think about with that. Um, the other thing I gave you is a really quick, um, it's called the Swedish Bible study method. And it's actually what we used for our, our for a Greenville Bible study back in the spring. Um, these are questions that you could jot down in a journal. Um, I'm not gonna go over the whole thing, but you could literally just draw these symbols on a page in your journal, open, to, open God's word, read it, make these notes out of it, and then talk about it with somebody. It's a fantastic, simple Bible study model that's wonderful for having um, conversations with friends. You could do this at lunch with a coworker. You could do this with your kids, any of those things. It's just easy questions. Um, the ones on the front side of the paper, the first three are reflective and great for conversation. The other, the ones on the back are pretty introspective and are meant for application. And so it's questions like, how, what are you gonna do with this? Is there someone you could talk about this with? And one of the cool things, it's called the Swedish Bible study method because um, a missionary actually found a group of college students and this is what they were doing for their Bible study together. And he took it and shared it with other missionaries. And this has been used in mission fields around the world. And they've actually seen thousands of people led to Christ through conversations that came out of people studying God's word together. So um, I wanted to give you that to just equip you as people that are going forth and are in other places and spaces that we can use God's word um, as a tool to share his truths with the people around us. All right, how many minutes do I have left, Brittany? Two and a half, probably. Oh, good, great. All right, I would love to have your question cards but there's no time for them. I'm so sorry. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them by email. I do have one quick slide. Can you go to the pictures? I prepped a question in advance because I was like, this is one I probably, someone will ask is, how do I know what translation of the Bible to use? Um, so in Bible translations, we have formal translations and you can see on the chart, um, my favorite here is ESV. And a lot of times people use the King James or the New King James, um, NASB. Any of those are great formal translations. They are word-for-word -word translations or, in some cases, phrase translations. But they're great ways that they have translated it and made it as close to the original words of the original languages. The next one is moderate translations. 
And these try to find a balance between specific words and then also balancing in those phrases and what did this really mean in context. They're a little less bumpy to read than the formal translations. They, they flow easier. And um, the next one are functional translations. So they are going for meaning of the phrase and the big idea of the paragraph and that kind of thing more than they're going for word for word literal understanding. And um, then paraphrases are fun, but they're not always a great like steady diet. Um, the message translation is, it has its place. Eugene Peterson did a great thing in giving us this, but it's definitely big picture, modern language, sometimes different pictures than what we have in the original translations because he wants people to understand the big picture truths of God's word and how it would apply today when that just doesn't have a good correlation to, um, to the Bible. But, so I say that there, it's a great extra. Does that make sense? Once you've got your translation and you've read through it and you understand it, or if you've read through it and you're like, I don't get this. What's, what's, what's he trying to say here? What's God trying to tell me? This is a great way to, to kind of get a second perspective on it. And so, one more picture? Yeah. So these are like a bookshelf, and they all have their place. Um, it, and the answer to what translation of the Bible should I use is you should use the one that you will use. So if you, if you want to pick the Bible that you're going to read from regularly, find one that you enjoy reading from regularly. And it might take a little bit of trial and error. It might be a digital Bible on your phone, version. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the people who developed that. Uh, it might be a beautiful, bound Bible. Before you get it bound and your name on the front, find the translation you like, you know? Because um, it's not a paperweight, and we don't want to feel like we have a beautiful paperweight. Um, so I just encourage you, like, dig into God's Word and um, pour over yourselves worship and consider the things that you do um, and how they will help grow you to be more like Christ. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate you being here. <laughs>